It is good to be with you this morning, to be able to worship with the saints. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, if you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible hopefully beside you or underneath the seat in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles, and you can find this passage on page 942 of the pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. If you do not own a Bible, please see that as our gift to you as well. Just take that home with you, open it up, feast upon God's Word. So this morning we are looking at verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our, our study through the letter to the Hebrews. So starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hear the word of the Lord. In the winter of 320 A.D., this is going way back, the, imp the emperor... Licinius, who was the emperor of the East, broke his agreement with Constantine, emperor of the West, in an edict to end the persecution of Christians. Licinius ordered all Roman soldiers to renounce Christianity and to offer sacrifices to Roman gods, lowercase g. Licinius was persecuting Christians during this time. His edict reached the thundering legion of Sebasti, and the order was passed down to the soldiers. Forty Christians in the legion withstood threats, beatings, and torture and refused to obey the edict, choosing instead to obey a higher authority. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, 
or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. In retaliation, the legion marched the men to a frozen lake where they were ordered to remove their armor, clothing, and stand naked as a form of torture to death. So they're out on this frozen lake, and the legion lit a large fire on the shore with a warm bath and food to tempt the Christians to make the pagan sacrifice, to renounce their Christian faith and save their very lives. The commander told them, you may come ashore when you are ready to deny your faith. The men began to pray this anthem, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. The mother of one of the youngest soldiers was present, and she enticed her son to abandon the others. And he did eventually come off the ice with his head bowed in shame. And there was a centurion on the shore watching all of this. On the ice, the remaining Christians continued to cry out, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. In response, that centurion confessed Jesus as Christ, removed his armor, weapons, and clothing, and he joined the 39 remaining Christians on the lake. The next morning, the 40 martyrs of Sebasti were found on the ice and forever recorded their faithful resistance in the history of Christianity. I want us this morning to ponder how believers could so courageously go to their deaths like this. What we see in our passage this morning is that Christ is the captain of such a great salvation that we've seen in Hebrews thus far. He has provided such a great uh, salvation, and when, when believers fully grasp the reality of what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The realities of those who were once, according to our passage, enslaved or in bondage to the fear of death are set free. And as Troy reminded us, a lot of the songs that we were able to sing together corporately today, that anthem was ringing forth where we were once enslaved or in bondage to sin or the fear of death Christ has liberated the captives. He is the captain who has delivered his people with such a great salvation. Amen. And so I want to spend some time working through these verses and see, once again, as we have spent several Lord's Days just gazing upon this great salvation. May the Spirit give us eyes to see. And so starting in verse 10, if you've got your Bibles open, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, referring to God, the Father, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation is the one who initiates or the originator of salvation. In extra-biblical Greek, it designated one who founded cities or champion, uh, the, the champion who fought on behalf of a nation. That is the founder being referred to, the one who is th the, the leader, the captain of bringing many sons to glory. 
And we know very clearly that that is the Lord Jesus. What we see in the beginning of this passage is not only the son's role in salvation, but the father's role. And in a sense, we should stop and just gaze upon the beauty of our triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each carrying out separate functions in the economy of salvation. But while they're, they're functioning in maybe different capacities, they're all united in saving hin- uh, sinful humanity. That is the, the unified purpose, bringing glory to God through the redemption of sinners. And so the gospel, what we see, this great salvation, transforms sinners who were once far off, dead in their trespasses and sins, being brought into the family of God. And what we see in our passage, they're, they're called sons and daughters. They're part of the family and also siblings to Christ. He's not ashamed to call those who have been saved by grace through faith in him brothers. How amazing the eternal son of God who created all things, we're told in the first chapter of Hebrews, who sustains all things, left heaven, came to earth in order to bring those who were far off, who were dead, into the family and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's amazing. It was fitting that God should make this the plan of redemption. And some marvel, and we should, and just think, why is it that the eternal Son of God needed to become man, dwell amongst us, and go through all that he went through in the the short 30, 33 years of his life on earth? Why? And in our passage, we see the the why answered along with many other um, aspects and and, things. parts and beauty of God's redemptive plan accomplished through the Son. Now, bringing many sons to glory sets the Messiah's mission on a completely different trajectory than what the Jews had anticipated. What the Messiah was come was supposed to come and do, the promises made in the Old Testament. The Jews expected an outward, glorious, royal deliverance to come from a mighty warrior who would lead them. What could they expect from a Messiah who suffered and died? It was such a stumbling block to the Jews for them to be told that the Messiah was Jesus Christ who died on the cross. That, that concept was, according to the flesh, just out of the, the realm of possibilities from what they had been promised of old of what the Messiah would come to do and accomplish. As for the salvation itself, it would be a different kind of salvation than than previously experienced by the Jews. So like when they escaped from Egyptian slavery, that was a physical bringing them out and bringing them into the promised land, that whole episode. Now that in their minds was just probably a glimpse of what they had expected. We want to be brought out of what we're experiencing, this this, uh, oppression from the Romans and and all the, the surrounding countries, and be delivered by the Messiah, just like the Hebrews were delivered out of the bondage, the slavery of Egypt. Something like that. That's what we're, we're looking for the Moses to come to take us to the promised land. 
But God, God saw a much greater need for, for sinners. It was going to be a spiritual and heavenly deliverance from sin, from Satan, from death and hell. See, what, we're, what we see in our passage this morning is that God wanted a people for himself, and it was in and through the Messiah that they would come into eternal glory with him. So it was little wonder that the way to achieve this was totally different from a, a physical type of army or military deliverance that they had expected. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is only possible if you understand sin and the penalty of sin and the righteousness of God only possible through a perfect and suffering Savior. There's, a, there's a, a way in which this is written that really can be confusing. Make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It sounds strange to our ears. Making Jesus perfect through suffering. But this is really the author of the letter to the Hebrews beginning to help the recipients of this letter and us understand what Jesus really came to accomplish. Christ becoming perfect through suffering does not mean that somehow he was sinful prior to the crucifixion. He was undefiled by sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. Perfection is a prominent theme that we're going to see throughout Hebrews. Being made perfect actually introduces the idea of Jesus becoming a high priest. This is new for us as we're reading through Hebrews. This is the first introduction to the, the concept of Jesus being our high priest. It is employing the sense of consecration and ordination to a priestly office. This perfect through suffering. Jesus underwent this conse consecration to his priesthood, not through the rituals of washing and the anointing that the, the priests of old uh, were consecrated by, but through his lifelong obedience to the will of God amidst trials and suffering of various kinds, climaxing in his death. And so this being made perfect through suffering, this is his ordination, so to speak, his being set aside, his consecration to fulfilling the office of the high priest. And it was through his suffering and obedience that he accomplished this being made perfect, so to speak, kind of language. There's a, a passage that parallels this in chapter 5 of Hebrews, Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We'll get there, Lord willing, in chapter 5, but I think that helps kind of shine a little bit of light on what we read in our passage this morning. Now in verses 11 through 13, there is further explanation of the activity of the Father and the Son in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. 
In verse 11, we, we hear this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies, being Jesus, and those who are sanctified, being God's elect, have the same source or origin. So one way to look at that is they both have the same source, which is God. Another way to look at it is they, he who is the one who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified are all of one nature, that is, human nature. That is why Jesus could call or is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, the basis for, for all of the, these testimonies that the writer draws upon are actually rooted in Old Testament texts. So he's going to build his, his argument, build his case on uh, why it was fitting that God accomplished redemption through this means, by making the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering, all of that's going to start to be pieced together by referencing Old Testament scriptures. So this is the basis. He was of one nature with them. Jesus became flesh. He is not ashamed to call them brothers as he demonstrates from Psalm 22. That's the first reference. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will tell of your name. Your name. The one who comes to become the, the founder of our salvation, bringing many sons to glory, is the one who declares the name of God to those who need to hear the name of God. God's name is unknown to men by nature. Now, for some, you're going, well, that doesn't quite make sense. You, you hear about God, and even if I'm not saved, I can hear about the name of God, but, but follow me just for a moment. This is the way he communicates God's goodness and God's grace to these people. And this is the name of God meant here, which the Lord Jesus actually says in John chapter 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the founder of our salvation is the one who is using this, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is using this quotation in Psalm 22 to help us understand what Christ, the founder, is, is proclaiming to those who have ears to hear. I will proclaim the name of God to you. When you hear this proclamation, those whom are his will respond. So in John's gospel, Jesus talks about the sheep hearing his voice. They will hear my voice and they will come. When the founder of our salvation makes known the name of God, who God is, his excellencies, his goodness and his grace, those whom the Father gave the Son will have ears to hear and will come. And so Jesus is saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The second part of this testimony goes on to state that he will sing your praises. And where will he do this? In the midst of the congregation. That is, in the great assembly of the people in the temple, in that context, this was a type of the whole church, the whole elect 
worshiping the one who f- for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Also, Christ's participation of their nature, not being ashamed to call us brothers, made it necessary for him, the second quotation, I will put my trust in him, it made it necessary for him to trust God the Father, which the author of Hebrews demonstrates by quoting this this next passage. This this passage is actually... um, uh, it's found, the, the words, the meaning, in 2 Samuel 22, also Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. I will put my trust in him. It's a confession of faith that appears in multiple different places in the Old Testament. Now, this is Jesus helping us understand something. This could in no sense be said of Christ if he had not shared in our nature. I will put my trust in him. As his nature was one with ours, that made him our brother and made it necessary for while he was here on earth, he was to trust in God for all things. When we look at the Lord Jesus' life and ministry, there is in the human nature so much for us to glean and examples set before us that we are to emulate, to follow. Jesus, while walking on this earth, was 100% dependent upon the aid of the Holy Spirit to empower and enable him to walk in complete dependence upon God the Father. This is exactly how those who are now part of the family of God are to walk We don't do it in our own strength. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And Christ is helping us see here, the author, inspired by the Spirit, referencing these passages from old, is to help us see this one who is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the one who said, I will put my trust in him. And then the last testimony is, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. Now, if you were with us last week and you heard Hebrews 2, 9 unpacked and read, I want you to hear it again. It says this, but we see him for a little while, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you were wondering last week, or if you've been reading through Hebrews, who is the everyone, we are given that answer in our passage this morning. And just specifically as we look at this last Old Testament reference, Isaiah eight eighteen, Behold, I and the children God has given me, I think even more so here, it highlights the everyone. Who is it that's being referred to that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone? Those who are Christ's are all one family, and this is the Lord's doing. 
I want to take us through just a few passages in John's gospel. In this one little Old Testament phrase, I think there is so much packed into it. When you wrestle with the doctrines of of unconditional election and particular or limited atonement and want to know who did Christ taste death for, listen to a few of these passages. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I, Jesus talking, and the Father are one. And then lastly, going back to the high priestly prayer in John 17, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Through these Old Testament references, testimony. The, the, the author of Hebrews confirms the relation between the children being brought to glory and the captain of their salvation. Why did God the Father make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering in order to bring them to glory? Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, there are a number of things that the author of this letter takes for granted, uh, takes for granted by, by understanding or knowing that the Hebrews would, would understand what he's saying and what he's implying. First, that the devil has the power of death. He is writing in such a way that they would know this reality. First, that the devil has the power of death. Second, that because of this, people were full of fear of death. So they lived in lifelong bondage and slavery because of their fear of death. Third, that the Messiah could actually deliver people from this state. And fourth, lastly, that the Messiah would accomplish this through his suffering. The way that verse 14 begins, since therefore the children share in in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. I know it may be self-explanatory, but think about this. Christ partook of flesh and blood, became like us in every way, because you must share in flesh and blood in order to die. 
So there's logic being laid out before us in order to, to become like us and to die, one must actually share in flesh and blood. And he now declares the result and necessity of that union in respect to the work that God has appointed to his son and the ends in which the son accomplishes those purposes. There are two results that we, we see in these verses. The first is the destruction of the devil and the freeing of those who have been in slavery because of death. Those two things are accomplished by the Son partaking flesh and blood and dying. The destruction of the devil and the freeing of those who have been in slavery because of death. Neither of these things could have happened except through the captain of our salvation, which he could not have performed unless he had the same nature as the children. Verse 16 is very interesting if you're still looking at this passage. It's not just for anyone. In verse 16, the author reiterates that this was surely not for angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And I wish we had hours upon hours just to kind of dig into all, each word that is used and why. But we have been working through the superiority of the Son over angels in, in chapters 1 and into 2. And so it's not out of the, the norm or out of the ordinary that he would again reference angels. But this great plan of redemption, Christ becoming flesh, was not to help the fallen angels who rebelled. That's not why he did this. So to just hone in and clarify, he actually goes very specific and says, it wasn't for them, it was for the offspring of Abraham. Now, he could have said the offspring of Adam, all of Adam's posterity because of the fall, everyone was affected with death and the fear of death in that bondage and slavery to sin. But he specifically says the children of Abraham. And again, I think this is to help the readers and us fully and clearly understand the promises that were made of old, the promise made to Abraham of what God would accomplish through his family, but not just through the flesh, but as we look into the New Testament, we see very clearly that those who are children of Abraham are by faith in the Son made the seed of Abraham. It's not ethnicity, it's not your flesh, your, your heritage that makes you part of Abraham's family. It's by faith. And so the founder of salvation did not come to help the angels, but specifically to redeem those who from eternity past were chosen by God to be his people. This was not some kind of plan of redemption that was just haphazard and, and Christ would die on the cross to make it possible for someone to believe and come to faith in him. No, no, no. This was a mission. The Father sent the Son to die specifically for his own, to redeem a people, to set his gaze upon, if you were in Christ, you, and to take upon 
himself your sins to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. Not just some general, maybe someone might. Oh, no, 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 no. Christ came for his own. And his sheep, they hear his voice and they come to him. Brothers and sisters, this is of great encouragement to get glimpses of the grand redemptive plan of God and all that he's accomplished through the captain of our salvation. John Owen has a famous book, and the title's kind of lengthy, and for some it's confusing. I admit, I would look at it and someone would ask me, what's the name of that title? And I'd kind of get confused. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. When you really start to see what we're looking at here in Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, that title is spot on. The death of death in the death of Christ. What we see in our passage this morning is that Christ dying actually accomplished a whole lot. The death of death. What power Satan had, what power the devil had in death, Christ's death did away with the power that Satan had in death. And so there really was the death of death in the death of Christ. The fear that enslaves every human, man, woman, grandparent, child, we all outside of Christ are in the same camp. And we're told here that because of sin entering the world and death entering through sin, Satan has had the power of death and there is fear that actually enslaves us to that reality. And rightly so, whether you acknowledge it or not, you will one day die and stand before a holy and righteous God. And if you stand before that holy and righteous God in your sin, you will be condemned, eternally punished in hell, separated from the glories of God, eternal bliss with him. That will not be a reality for those who die in their sins. That is a fear of death that will enslave you. Christ, in his work on the cross, when we say he overcame death or defeated death and he defeated sin, when, when we root that, ground that in scripture, we see in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, what all is actually happening through, this, through the work of the captain of our salvation. The looming prospect of death should rightly cause those outside of Christ, Christ to have great fear. Death not only brings the end of this life on earth, but the beginning of God's justice against sinners. Christ, however, what we see going into 16, 17, and 18 of our passage, Christ, however, very clearly propitiates God's holy wrath. Big word meaning those who turn to him in repentance and faith are delivered from God's holy wrath. God's justice has been satisfied by the death of Christ. That's propitiation. 
We in our sin deserve the full wrath of God upon us for eternity. That is justice. Christ standing in our place as our substitute bore that wrath, became a curse for us. He propitiated God's wrath, meaning he satisfied it for those who have faith in him. That is glorious news that is not just impacting our lives here, but for eternity. This is really important in understanding how the Bible defines atonement. God's wrath was satisfied and his righteousness was vindicated. We see the meaning of the cross so clearly in the words that the Apostle Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. Please hear the words of God. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this defeating Satan, destroying Satan, what's being described here is that Satan is the great accuser of us and our sin before God. He wants nothing more than to make the guilt that you have on your shoulders, the weight of sin on you, real and alive in your face all the time. What Christ accomplished, all that stood against us, all of the legal demands where we have all fallen short of the glory of God and disobeyed him and deserve all that is due us because of our sin, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That activity on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So those who were once enslaved to that fear in Christ, we are liberated. We are free from that fear, that bondage, that slavery. Praise be to God. Satan's got nothing anymore. That power, it's gone for those in Christ Jesus. If you this morning are outside of Christ and go, ah, I hear about Christ, Christianity, I can take it or leave it, please hear from Scripture the reality of your sin before a holy God and what is being offered through the blood of the Lamb. Let this be the day of repentance and belief upon the captain of our salvation. So when we look at the person and work of Christ in the Christian faith, it is one that alternates for us of looking back and also looking forward. We're doing this a lot, and that's really good. Looking back, looking forward. In verses 17 and 18, we're looking backwards at the life and ministry of Christ and how he walked through suffering and temptation as our captain, as our brother, as our high priest. Please hear this. He 
He is no stranger to the difficulties of this life. He, according to Scripture, has experienced in every way what we experience as humans. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This theme of priesthood is really only introduced here, and it becomes so prominent as we move through the letter to the Hebrews. Our merciful and faithful high priest is the solution to our biggest problem in life, sin and death. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And because the nature of the gospel, because the nature of this gospel, he also is the solution to our day-to-day trials and temptations. Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses at every level. Therefore, we in Christ can approach our captain with confidence and in faith. This is seen in his care and watchfulness for his own. Just a few passages from Scripture. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There is no time nor season when the sons and daughters have committed their care to one who will ever neglect them. They they are never, those in Christ, are never out of his heart or mind. We are told that they are engraved upon his palms. Christ shows that he is the captain of our salvation through his tenderness and his love. He tends for his flock as the great shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young, Isaiah 40, 11. Christ also, we're told, leads with power and authority and majesty. Micah 5, 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. That is the captain of our salvation. And so thinking back to the opening illustration where we started this morning, You may not be encountering an edict from from a tyrannical leader to renounce your faith and follow your captain onto a frozen lake. Although, I do not think that it is too far-fetched to kind of consider that trajectory that our country is on. We are always, though, presented with opportunities to follow our captain. Some of us, this very week, will be sitting across from family and friends sharing meals together who are completely hostile to the gospel. And they will need to be reminded of this great salvation, maybe told for the very first time. And many of us in those situations will be tempted either to despair or to silence, just to avoid causing mayhem within the family. And I just want to remind us, You may think that that leads to peace, but really that would be defined as really peace faking if the truth needs to be spoken in love for the sake of their souls. There are appropriate times. There's discernment on when and how we go about that. But 
thinking back to that opening illustration, that we would be empowered to follow our captain wherever he takes us. Because there is no longer fear, there is no longer enslavement or bondage to any that we experienced when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. We have radically been altered in our standing before a holy God, both now and for eternity. And that impacts every conversation we have, every interaction we have with those around us that need to hear of the great hope that we have. Are we ready to open our mouths and proclaim the excellencies of this great salvation and the captain, the high priest, the Lord Jesus, our King? Let us pray. Father, as Christ is not ashamed to call us his brother and sister, may we not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Lord, strengthen our footing upon the rock of our salvation this morning, we pray. May we glory in our Redeemer this Lord's Day and into this week of Thanksgiving as we reflect upon and sing of how deep the Father's love for us truly is. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond to God.